This is The Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joe Cohen from Queens College. I'm Leslie Hankson from Georgetown University. And I'm Corey Fields from Georgetown University. Uh, Gabriel could not make it today as his office has been flooded. I promise, promise, promise to talk about like a bunch of old Greek people having sex. I will happily disparage cultural studies, sort of whatever I can do to fill in. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) We're on the web, sociocast.org slash annex, on Twitter at Sochanix, and on Facebook, the Annex Sociology Podcast. And today, Corey Fields of Georgetown University. Later on, we're going to chat, have a chat with Jay Livingston of Montclair State. Welcome to Corey. It's great to have you here. It is great to be here. I'm excited about this. Corey was our second guest about a year and a half ago. Right. Uh, when we spoke about his book, A Black Elephant in the Room. Corey, what's been going on with you since then? Um, let's see. So I've been so well, some still some more black Republican stuff. Nothing super formal. Actually, probably the most interesting uh black Republican stuff has been the number of like my interview subjects and people I observed um who have <laughs> recently gotten in touch with me, sort of like um <laughs> wanting someone to talk politics about. Uh, I've probably mentioned this on the the last time I was on. Um one of the things I found was that, you know, having someone who would listen to them talk about politics without a lot of sort of explicit judgment um, mm-hmm. set mm-hmm. me up to become like their friend who they talk politics with. So um, this Trump yeah. stuff has um, really got the lips loose again. So I've been hearing back from a lot of them. Um, On the research front, I am kicking off uh, a new project on studying um, Black advertising professionals. So that is, yeah, that's uh, coming along. I've been mostly, you know, sort of grant application stuff, um, but getting ready to get out in the field on that. So yeah, so but fun stuff. Settling into life at Georgetown, living in D.C. all good. All good. Oh, sounds nice. Yeah. So, Corey, when your episode came out, I was looking at the old analytics. We had 60 web page visits on the week of your episode, and I was so thrilled with it. <laughs> uh, there's a, it's been listened to a few hundred times since in the back catalog, but uh, just to show what a difference a year and a half makes, um, we're now doing like 600 to 1,000 listens. Uh, wow. Wow, and, that's impressive. Uh, I mean, it could and, just be that I sucked, and it was like, no oh. way. <laughs> no. We were we had about twenty followers on Twitter, and uh, it was mostly just our friends listening. And uh, I, I was looking it up today just because I went back because it was you know it's sort of like to see a then and now thing. Now we're doing across all of our you know all of our content, we're doing two hundred fifty listens a day. Wow. Yeah. So it's like it's like a, a, a plenary session's worth of audience. It's yeah. really just me like clicking anytime <laughs> right. every day. Do you know if people are assigning it for their classes? I don't. I don't know huh. that. I wonder. But it was uh so yeah. That's a good uh, idea though. Hey, hey, all of you in listener <laughs> land, <laughs> right? You should assign us to your classes. And I guess students, if you want to be shady, if there's a book you're supposed to read and they've been a guest (laughs) on the Annex, you can just, like, listen to their segment. (laughs) So the first thing that uh, I I looked at today was uh, a post by Fabio Rojas on Org Theory. So a couple days ago, he put out a post saying that his sense is that editors are saying that uh, journals are getting a lot more submissions than uh, they used to be. Uh, I, who knows why? But uh, I, I had a little exchange with them, and I was asking, you know, what's your sense of like the average quality? Is the average article getting better? Like maybe hmm. the increase in journals is just there's more research being done, more people in the field, even though we know that faculty positions aren't really growing. And maybe people are just more productive. And his sense was, he was like, no, most of what's published is normal science, right? It's just really polished normal science experiments. Mm. And and so if quality isn't improving while there is a flood of new submissions, what does that mean is going on? Like, what do you interpret that as? More submissions, but a constant, you know, the top – 
5% of articles or whatever are, are pretty constant. So no appreciable quality improvement at the top. What's going on? You want me to start off with my take or uh, anybody want to go first? Yeah, let's hear your take. I don't, yeah, I'm curious. I, I, I think that uh, there is a convention developing in the field, something that we were taught very early in Princeton, that of the minimum publishable unit. <laughs> and uh, the game now is that people are trying to take, you know, a research topic and milk it for quantitatively more articles, as, as many articles quantitatively as possible, even if maybe the, the con- their collective contribution is... Uh, you know, equivalent to what one article might have been uh, back in the day. It's basically, are we all playing a numbers game where we're all just trying to get as many publications however we can, and the way to win this game is to figure out how to churn out publishable volume? Well, I'd really like to see the metrics, right? I'd like to see how the number of submissions have increased over time at each of these journals that are stating that their submission uh, numbers are significantly increasing because because uh, part of me is 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 thinking that I I actually don't believe that submissions like have risen that much. What I do think is going on is there are fewer people who are actually taking on the responsibility of of being peer reviewers uh. and and I think that that puts that puts editors in a huge bind and I think it feels like they're being flooded with this avalanche of submissions when really it's just there aren't enough reviewers out there um, who are taking on the labor but presumably like that would would have been a first step that people would have looked at the actual numbers right so the yeah, I don't be believing people, Corey. <laughs> <laughs> you probably won't go wrong there. Yeah, um, totally. But, but I mean, I guess if we assume that the numbers actually are going up, I mean, so uh, yeah, I buy Joe's point. I mean, but it seems like there's a root cause thing. It's like, so what? It's like the people are going to sort of smallest publishable unit because there is more pressure to publish things, right? Um, mm-hmm. Alternatively, though, could it just be that the I don't know. The discipline is growing, right? So it's like, are there just more people submitting stuff? Like the volume of people submitting maybe has gone up. Could be that other disciplines are now thinking like, oh, I'll publish in SOCH. Um, So we might be getting, you know, political scientists or economists or psychologists publishing um, in our journals. Uh, I know when I was, uh, as a grad student, I was like the... um, grad student assistant for social psych quarterly and we got a bunch of psychologists who would you know submit stuff to the journal um so it could be that um yeah maybe but obviously yeah sort of uh the pressure to publish is on and that pressure um is trickling down but there's two types of pressures to publish right there is the pressure to publish a groundbreaking work that alters people's views Versus the pressure of producing a quantitatively large number of papers, regardless of their impact or their novelty or the incremental contribution to knowledge that, you know, they represent. And I'm wondering, is there a quantity game going on? And as a group, we're sort of starting to play a numbers game. Like it's like a neo-institutional story, right? Well, if we're thinking about numbers games, one of the things that I actually, that I have actually noticed is more and more publications that kind of look more like, kind of like the med school um, model where there are multiple authors on one publication. Mm. Right. Um, And it could be that, you know what I mean? It's like, for example, you, there's one project, right? There are multiple people who are working on it, right? And they take turns being first author, right? So if they're just changing, you know, if they're making slight variations, right, um, in the publications, or even if they have just like one data set, right, that or one one data set that they all had a hand in collecting and, and, you know, and they decide to mine it for these different, um, for, for these different topics. I actually think that maybe that might be part of what's going on. Right. It's like, you know, maybe as part of this pressure to publish more, um, it might be that, you know, and that would explain, I think sort of like this lack of 
significant uh, increase in, I guess, whatever kind of quality metric mm. um, Fabio was mentioning. Um, so, I mean, that's just another thing that I that I would throw out there is I kind of feel like for a very long time, you know, people were told, you know, you know, if there are too many authors on the paper, it's you're not going to get credit. And I actually think that, you know, that at least to some extent, like that paradigm has changed somewhat. I mean, it could also be that people are, I mean, this is just pure speculation, but mm. people are committing to um, sort of larger scope projects. So mm. a single project is producing multiple pieces, right? Which might sort of end up devolving into a smallish publishable unit. I mean, I definitely think about with my, the work I do, like, it's obviously heavily book oriented type projects and even the non book stuff in some ways is kind of one offish. Thankfully now I'm sort of a post tenure kind of life. So I don't have to be super concerned about that. I can just be like, Oh, I'm interested in this thing on singleness and there'll be one paper, but that's it. Um, but that model of doing so seems to be somewhat out of vogue. Right. So people are like, Oh, I do stuff on, you know, family formation and I'm going to do 20 papers that are, you know, sort of mm -hmm. linked to that. And you, you know, there's 20 papers in it, I'm sure. Um, but if people are taking on those sorts of projects, they're going to be producing, you know, a larger volume of material potentially. I don't know. I mean, yeah, it's, hmm. That, that it, it sounds like you're worried that the ideas are getting smaller. <laughs> uh, well, uh, yeah. That, well, that is sort of what I'm. I'm wondering. Like, is it? You know, it, are is it? Uh, are we developing a disciplinary sort of habit that will ultimately prevent the uh, production of genuinely novel perspectives? Mm -hmm. You know. Uh, in our quest to get as many papers, like you know, r run the same regression six times with you know, you know, a few different variables on each side, and you know, just start salami slicing it to death, right? Mm. Or that sort of like I'm interested in you know this independent variable, and I'm gonna put it in models with a range of different outcomes, and yeah. the story is gonna be seemingly unique but it's essentially about you know the effect of you know i don't know um, same regression with different subsets or right, different, right, you know, right. <laughs> different coding you know i have confessed to not being a digital native i'm not on twitter i'm not on instagram but i am on facebook and i did post on facebook uh, I think last week, because I'd watched just the first three episodes of the R. Kelly documentary, uh, Surviving R. Kelly. Mm. And it was a devastating experience. I, I forced myself to watch um, the, la the, the rest of the rest of the documentary series. And wait, Leslie, thing, can you give, can you give some background just for people? Who I'm, ab okay. I'm, I'm about to, oh, pardon me. Right? Uh, no, that's okay. And so for me, um, what was so troubling to me wasn't, um, what the documentary was showing about R. Kelly, right? Which for those of you who don't know, R. Kelly was this R&B star who then like broke through and became a pop star. He also has, you know, his foot in the gospel world and R. Kelly has there like since for a very, very long time now, there have been rumors um, first circulating, I think, primarily within the African-American community, but then, you know, sort of branched out into the broader community about R. Kelly's predilection for uh, teenage girls. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the first big breaking story about R. Kelly's predilection for teenage girls was when he he married Aaliyah, um, who at the time was 15, uh, which I did not know until I saw the documentary. Um, it seemed that the reason why he married Aaliyah was because he was caught having sex with her when she was 15. And I think he mm. was 28 in his tour bus. Mm. And, you know, it's kind of like a J, like something out of Jane Austen where, okay, you got to get married to make sure that, you know what I mean? Yeah. You don't, you don't get arrested for statutory rape or for being a rake or what have you. Um, but then the stories about R. Kelly, um, became like even more troubling, um, 
stories about him going to high schools and malls uh, where he and uh, his uh, entourage of his, you know, his safety duty would troll around for teenage girls. Um, and he would invite them to his studio and he would have multiple rooms where he would be having sex with girls as young as 14. And it all like really came to a head when the infamous P tape came mm -hmm. out um, in which R. Kelly is seen having sex with uh, what turns out or allegedly is a 14 year old girl um, who he also is seen urinating on, um, including in her mouth and, um, and an older, an older person. I think she was maybe 19 at the time and they were also engaged in a threesome. And um, so. What year um, was this Leslie? When did the, the, the P tape come out? When did the P tape come like out? 2000, right? Like the, huh? well, the trial was in 2008. So. Yeah, so that was like, so I, I want to say the P tape came out maybe in 2002 because yeah, there were significant yeah. delays um, in the trial. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so that's kind of the background. So you have this man who is seen as a musical genius, um, who is heralded as kind of like a hero and a star within the African American community. And at the same time, you have these rumors. Um, about these um, these crimes and and sexual indiscretions and his preying on 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 teenage girls and young women, and so then that is basically what I think the documentary um, actually like forces you to grapple with, right? You know, you know, I like, you know, back at, you, you know, it's like, we can talk about things like, what, what's that called? The bystander effect, right? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's like, oh yeah, it's like, you know, people decide, oh yeah, someone else is going to help this people, you know, that victim. I think of it as like, I term this the chicken head effect, right? It's kind of like, you're like, okay, we have this one person who's supposed who's an icon within our community and who we don't want to see brought down. And then you have these young girls who want to be famous, want to be loved, want, want whatever, right? And so instead of blaming him for his predatory behavior, right, we blame these young girls, mm -hmm. right? And we say, well, you know, it's because they put themselves out there. Never mind the fact that he actually sought them out. Well, what was your take on, on uh, was it Chance the Rapper who said, uh, you know, about talked about the adultification of black girls? Yeah, and, that's uh, a thing. And it's a, like, it was an interesting idea. Like, it, it had me thinking, because like, this wasn't surprising, like, uh, that he's a, you know, a child predator. We all knew it. And, you know, I I was listening to R. Kelly, like, uh, over the, the winter holidays, right? It's not like it. I still stream him. He still got a check because of my behavior. Mm -hmm. uh, you know why? You know why? Why is anybody surprised? Is this even a surprise? And why didn't we do anything earlier? Well, to be fair, I mean, I think for a lot of people, it's not a surprise, and a lot of people have been sort of cancel R. Kelly for, for a while, time. right? Mm -hmm. Like you know, um, Jim DeRigata, Jim DeRigatis, the music journalist from I think the Sun Times in Chicago was writing about this, you know, since the early to mid 2000s. And, you know, I mean, I lived in Chicago for a long time and people are always like, oh, people in Chicago knew, people in Chicago knew. I mean, I wasn't that like tapped into what was happening on the ground in Chicago. Like I found out about it via news stories, but I have for a while and I sort of, you know, have put down R. Kelly and just kind of like, yeah, this is not cool. I mean, Dave Chappelle was doing skits about yes. it, like, you know, savagely calling it out. So, I mean, I feel like there is, um, I don't I mean, know. Do, like, you, do you think he was really, like, was that really savagely calling it out? Because, you know, I, I read this piece in the New York Times that said, you know, it turned it into a bit of a joke. And then R. Kelly kind of jumped in on it in a way. And he kind of pulled the Trump where you're, you know, you're, you're given sort of egregiously bad news about somebody, but there's an air of ridicule and we don't know whether to treat it as serious or a joke. And it ultimately ends up trivializing the whole situation. Cause I mean, he was, you know, uh, I don't know. I mean, I feel like I understood it as, um, 
definitely like a mocking critique. Like it wasn't mm-hmm. sort of a loving, this is just a joke kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Like, well, I, mean, I, I also think like in thinking about Chappelle's treatment of that, I mean, I think that if it was definitively known that that was a 14 year old girl in that video, which I think is what's left out of the Chappelle skit. Right. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's like this is a child like she's below the age of consent. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, I don't know that Chappelle would have approached that in the same exact way. Right. You know, if you have consenting adults who are engaging in, you know, what we think of as deviant forms of sexual behavior. Right. Um, And when I say we, I don't mean us as individuals. I mean, society as a whole. um, Then you know, then, okay, fine. It's easier to make fun of than if you're like, oh, hey, this is a 14-year-old girl. So that's number one. And then number two, right? Um, and one of the things that the documentary uh, like says over and over and over again is that R. Kelly actually became this master of 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 hiding of hiding in plain sight. He mm. was like, "Oh, you gonna make it a joke? I'm gonna make it a joke, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you're gonna accuse me of it. I'm gonna wink and nod at it. I'm gonna write a song about it, mm-hmm. and people are gonna be like, "Oh, he wouldn't write a song about it if he was really doing it, right?" Mm-hmm. I let's go, Corey. Oh no, I mean, I yeah, I mean, I think in some ways it's yeah. I mean, I guess the for me. It, one of the interesting things about this is is like uh what's i mean i feel like a lot of people are sort of not pointing fingers but there's a sense of who do we blame what you know mm-hmm. where do we lay the cause on this um and i guess you know i wrestle with that too because i'm not quite sure right it's sort of like well you know people have been calling for boycotts of his work for a while. And I think, you know, some people have been engaged in boycotting R. Kelly for a while. Um, And outside of that, I mean, we also, I feel like to what extent do we have to think about, you know, local law enforcement and, Mm -hmm. you know, um, his people on his team, you know, I mean, oh, it yeah. feels like there, I mean, I guess, yeah, there's like a big story and a small story in terms of the blame, but I feel like there actually are very much, very clearly direct people, like, you know, mm-hmm. people on his team who facilitated this kind of action. I mean, yeah. obviously him, you know, um, as well. And in some ways I feel like, you know, bigger stories around like we as a society, kind of let those people get lost in the shuffle you know like maybe i don't know i well think- i mean that that was the thing to me that was that was what was most disturbing for me in watching the documentary is there were all of these people who were there saying yeah he did this and yeah he did mm-hmm. that and but then you would listen to them talk about how they were complicit in him doing that mm-hmm. and and that was what was disturbing because I was like, oh, I knew he did that, but I did not know that you were going to the malls and going to those 15-year-old girls and saying, R. Kelly wants to talk to you. I did not know that you were a witness to the things that were going on in the studio or in his house. Like there was even one guy who was like, yeah, I mean, what was, he's like, what's so crazy is that during that whole time I was working for him, uh, I would look at these girls and I would just be like, yeah, they so, I mean, they're stupid to let themselves be treated this way. And I never once thought to blame him, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? To think about how, right? And that, and, and it's because he's paying your paycheck. That's mm-hmm. why. And it's because he's R. Kelly and you enjoy the status of like working for him and the fringe benefits from working for him. And I think that these are, I mean, these are, things that we see over and over and over again, right? When it's easier to blame the victim than it is to like call the perpetrator out, um, that's something that we see over and over again. But are we all a little bit guilty? I mean, like... No, because I, mean, I never listen to R. Kelly. Like, if you listen I mean, to... Look, I listen to R. Kelly, too, but I stopped. So actually, in some ways, no, I don't feel guilty, though. <laughs> I mean, if you, like... 
I I wasn't streaming him over the vacation. What's that? <laughs> <laughs> right. Only one person on this conversation was streaming him over the holiday. Well, like, but let's uh, if you've been listening to R. Kelly in the last ten years, because let's be honest, the I have thing, not. The whole thing about the whole thing about uh, her being a minor. It was almost like it was known and there was like a collective blind spot. Like, I'm not the only one who's listened to his music. Uh, and like, so well, I've been I listening mean, to it in the last 10 years. Have you been, are, are you, are you complicit in your own little way? I'm beginning to so, feel, yeah. So Joe, I mean, so, so that's really complicated, right? Because there are all these people who are like, well, um, so number one, like the, the, the girl who is the alleged victim hmm. and her parents all, they deny that it's her. Right. Mm -hmm. So if they're denying that it's her, right. And if R. Kelly is saying it's not him. Right. And then, right. He gets exonerated. He doesn't get convicted on the, on the charge. Then you can say to yourself, well, those were just allegations. Yeah. Like Trump right? and Russia. And, yeah. Those are just allegations. And you know what I mean? Like you should not, you know what I mean? Guilty, no, innocent until proven guilty. And he was not proven guilty. So you know what? I actually feel good mm. moving on and still listening to his music. Like, to be fair, I haven't listened to R. Kelly. Be I mean, in large part because I've never been a fan of R. <laughs> R. Kelly's, right? right? Like, it, maybe it would have been harder for me to... Uh, to, to boycott R. Kelly if I had been a fan, if his music had been such a large part of the soundtrack of my life, like, for example, Michael Jackson's music is. Which right? there's a documentary about to come out about him. Yes, uh, I know, you know and that's going to that's gonna hurt. But, like, say with, I mean, I feel like we all know about Michael Jackson. Like, if if, mm. if I'm to be honest, like, I, I feel like, I, I feel like I know about Michael Jackson. Well, I don't feel like I know about my. <laughs> oh, here we go. Here we go. Right. Here's here's no no no, no 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 but that's but that's exactly what I'm saying. Like mm -hmm. so for me so for me Michael Jackson presented as such a much more sympathetic uh, character than R. Kelly did, mm -hmm. right? Yes. Um, and number one, right? And also number two, I think also because it might be that because. Michael Jackson also presented as so asexual. It's like so it was it's it's so hard for me to think of him as a sexual being, right? Um and so all of these allegations and, and also he also seemed so frail. So it so it was like like did he do it? Was he the victim? I don't know. I mean, I, I think the answer to the, both those questions can be yes. Yes, he was the victim of something. I'm not sure what. I mean, I think in some ways, I mean, it's it'll be interesting to see what happens with R. Kelly because I've been, I mean, it's, you know, you get too many drinks in me and it's like a party stream conversation that would go on for a while. It's like mm. the sort of, reclamation of michael jackson right like mm -hmm. probably the best thing for his reputation was dying because mm -hmm. it's like wait we all forgot about that whole thing with like child molestation stuff mm -hmm. and because even the most generous reading is and clearly this is wildly inappropriate behavior right yes. like the most generous reading mm. gives me pause. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's no like, good scenario in all of this story. There, absolutely. There's no good <laughs> scenario, right? But I think, you know, the there was just a viral video of that um, UCLA gymnast, right? The awesome floor routine that had all these Michael Jackson songs in it. Mm. And I was just like, wow, we are really not going to be remembering this. We're engaged in like a collective forgetting mm -hmm. of this Michael Jackson stuff, which in some ways is actually interesting. People do stuff on like collective memory, but mm -hmm. like collective forgetting is also really compelling. And I think, you know, the R. Kelly stuff, there was also like a collective forgetting. Um, but now it'll be interesting to see. Like, I don't get the sense that we're going to be, you know, collectively allowed to forget the R. Kelly stuff. And it does, it's an interesting question. It may, may make for an interesting, um, what maybe a one-off publication, Joe, like they have a big <laughs> idea of like why Michael Jackson has managed to get away with it. Um, but well, we shall see well, how yeah. people feel after the documentary comes but out. But the documentary is certainly, I mean, I'm, hopefully, maybe it'll introduce new information, but 
we already know yeah. enough to be like, wait, why mm-hmm. is he like, you know, getting away with it? And, mm-hmm. uh, and here's the thing. I, so I feel like I don't know. Right. Yeah. And maybe it's because maybe it's because his victims, right. Or alleged victims had to sign those non-disclosure agreements. Right. So I feel like I don't, I, I feel like I don't know. I know that there no, are no. allegations. Do you not, do you not want to know, Leslie? <laughs> no, but what I'm saying, what I'm saying is that's a very, for me, that's a very good question. And that's why I brought up, maybe it's easy for me to just be like, I just cut out R. Kelly because I've never been right. a fan. I haven't been a super fan to begin with. Right. So that was easy. It's going to be painful mm. for me to give up Michael Jackson. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I don't, like I would never play Michael Jackson at a party. I like, you know, I'm Here's not doing like, active streaming. I mean, Here's I'm not a- like vocal about boycott Michael Jackson, but I I have enough pause already to be like, it feels like a great loss. It it is a great loss, but I don't know. I don't. Here's a question: Are we allowed to listen to the Jackson Five and Michael Jackson pre allegations? I mean, this gets into those like can you separate the art from the artist. Yeah. I mean, maybe what we should do is like when the docu- Michael Jackson documentary comes out, we'll all reconvene. We'll watch it and all reconvene and be like, okay, we're good idea. About this Michael Jackson versus R. Kelly thing. Okay. <laughs> Two things that I find interesting. One, there's a transactional element of morality, isn't there? Like uh, yeah. it, it makes that quite plain. Like uh, being more moral rectitude is difficult when uh, you got something to lose. I'm speaking of myself and R. Kelly, not uh, Leslie and Michael mm-hmm. Jackson at this point. But, <laughs> and then the, sec- you're right, the you're second right. thing is, is, isn't it interesting how perspective filters facts when we think about uh, changing people's minds? Like, like this is, we knew about, our, I, I submit that like I was quite convinced about R. Kelly for years, as I am with Michael Jackson. Uh, but those facts, I was able just on an emotional level or through perspective to just be completely blind to them until everything came to a head. It's like this whole Me Too thing, you know, made it unignorable. And uh, it's interesting because, you know, we're we're social scientists. We often think about changing people's minds by presenting them with new facts. But, you know, if there's one thing that's for sure that we've learned in the past few years, it's like people can see a fact, acknowledge a fact, but absolutely refuse to process it. And, yeah, and think, it's like the who you're going to believe, me or your lying eyes. Yeah. I mean, I guess there's also a story around what's the appropriate call to action or like what's the actionable behavior as, you know, music consumers or cultural consumers, right? So it's like, well, you know, if you bought an R. Kelly album, like he's already made that money. So what's what's being achieved by not listening to it? Um you know, well, it's like, and I say this as someone who like doesn't listen. I guess right. you know what's being like, you're sort of a symbolic. You're not endorsing this, um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. I there, well, I, so here's a here's a response to that, Corey. So in watching the documentary, right, um, there seem to be quite a few songs in his catalog um, that were uh, basically created like in response to his behavior, right? So it's like the creative process was fueled by this- Child predation. Immoral, decept- uh, uh, disgusting, in many cases, illegal behavior, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, right? So like, you know, if, you know, if Picasso was a serial killer and he painted one of his masterpieces in the blood of one of his victims, right? Would, is it okay to still think of it as a masterpiece? Or what about that that child uh, that child TV show star in England? Remember that British guy who it turned out was like molesting tons of kids on his show. Oh yeah, you know, like oh, should yeah. we be watching his back catalog too? You know what I mean? I don't. He wasn't even that funny. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm here with Jay Livingston from Montclair State University. Uh, Jay runs the Montclair Socio blog. It's at uh, Montclair Soci, so S-O-C-I dot blogspot dot com. How long have you been blogging, Jay? Uh, since 2000, let's see, September 2006, so 12 and a half years. You've got to be one of the longest sociology blogs going. I think so. I mean, I, I 
I looked at all the others uh, that I noted and, and bookmarked along the way. Hmm. And a lot of those people, I mean, the good people, Gabriel and uh-huh. uh, Tina Fetner and Jeremy Fries and Chris Eugen and good people. And they stopped. I think Fabio is probably the most consistent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I'm not sure when he started uh, Org Theory. I, re- I remember seeing your, your blog in grad school, though, like... Uh... You know, so it's it's an institution in the, <laughs> I guess, in digital sociology. <laughs> but uh, we had a, a great exchange about a bit we did earlier on the annex about uh, Eric Kleinenberg, loneliness and living alone. And what I enjoyed about it is Jay's been in the business a long time. And I guess you've been there long enough so that what we think is fresh and new, you can see like the uh, old wine in new bottles. And I just love that aspect of it. So let's set up the... Let's set up the story and then we'll get into it. So Jay was blogging on that same conversation about loneliness, uh, which I guess was initially generated by a, a New York Times story by David Brooks or? No, Arthur Brooks. Arthur Brooks. Okay. Do you want to give a, a summary of it just to set the stage? Well, yeah. Arthur Brooks, who is, uh, the Times has two conservative uh, columnists, one who's mm-hmm. on salary, David Brooks, and then the other who contributes once a month or so, Arthur Brooks from the American Enterprise Institute. And Arthur Brooks had a column, and I can't remember the exact title, but either the title or in it appeared uh, the phrase epidemic of loneliness. And he was uh, basing it on some uh, report from Cigna that came out saying that some, like over half of the country was lonely. Mm -hmm. And my first thought was, uh, yeah, we've been here before, and especially, uh, I was thinking, the guy who has really done the debunking of this long, because it crops up regularly, yeah. and the guy who is, goes to the data and looks and debunks it is Claude Fisher at Berkeley. Mm. Right. And, and so I read it, and I thought, oh, wait till Claude sees this, if he hasn't already. And then I waited for him to uh, to write about it in his blog, which is called Made mm. in America. And he didn't, so I blogged something about it. And but to the idea that we keep getting these reports about an epidemic of loneliness, and that yeah. Americans are lonely now. And it is true that people are lonely. Although after the Cigna report, another Pew came out with something like the figure was around ten percent. Mm. But um, but whatever it is, the chances are it hasn't increased all that much over right. the last several decades, at least, maybe longer ago than that. Mm. And so I started wondering, well, why is this myth so persistent? What is the appeal of this uh, of this myth? Mm-hmm. And um, and that reminded me of another myth that I blogged about like, within the first. I think six months that I was doing the uh, uh, the blog back in 2006 or seven, and that was the myth of the authoritarian past. So which one's that? I don't remember that. Well, there is, um, you know, you hear, you know, it's it's frequent to hear people complain about kids these days that they don't listen to their parents, and mm-hmm. you know, and. And several times since I've been writing the blog, I, I'm, I'm just reminded of that song from Bye Bye Birdie. Uh, you know, kids, uh, what the heck is wrong with these kids today? Kids, uh-huh. they are disobedient, disrespectful oafs and whiny and lazy. And uh, uh-huh. and that song, that show began, uh, opened in 1960. So mm. it's really a 1950s. <laughs> so if people were making that complaint about kids in the 50s, yeah. that, that somehow that that uh, for parents in the 50s, oh, that their parents were much more authoritarian and kids listened to their parents. Right. And then we've had this same thing. Like every generation, you hear this, you know, people complaining about, oh, well, I was a kid or, you know, well, yeah. You know, they look at some kid and say, well, gee, I could never get away with that with my old man. Right. And oh, I remember. I remember the articles about how Generation X doesn't want to work. Oh and, yeah. <laughs> uh... <laughs> yeah. Well, that has a lot more to do with labor market uh, forces. But anyway, yeah. I thought, well, what is what is the appeal of this 
where does where does the sense of the authoritarian past? Because mm-hmm. obviously each generation couldn't be less and less authoritarian because we long ago would have hit the zero authoritarianness yeah. <laughs> thing, right? We're, we're at the <laughs> yeah. asymptote, um, and yet. And so I remember this cartoon. It's a great cartoon. I wish I had a copy. And, but it shows a father and son coming out of the house after a big snowstorm. Mm-hmm. And they're trudging through this high snow. And it, it's like up almost to the father's knees. Mm-hmm. And trudging behind him is his little son. And on the son, you know, it's up to his chest. And the right. father is holding his hand up, hand up to his chest, you know, parallel mm-hmm. with the ground, saying, hey, this is nothing. When I was a kid, we had snow up to here. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I was thinking, it's the same thing with, with authoritarianism. That is, to the kid, the snow is up mm-hmm. to here. So to a child, right. adults look very authoritarian and powerful and, you know, to be feared and so on. Because they are. They're much bigger than a six-year-old. Mm-hmm. And so you remember parents, when you were a kid, they were much more right. powerful. And, such. and then you grow up to be an adult. Mm-hmm. And you realize that as an adult, no, you're not really all that powerful. That you have to, you know, make all kinds of compromises with the world. Mm-hmm. And you're, you know, negotiating with the world in a number of ways. And that even your kids seem to you to be not all that uh, commandable and so on. Right. So it's like and, a perspective thing. It's like, uh, it's a perspective thing. A coming well, of age type of yeah the uh, the the analogy I used was from a discredited idea in in evolution uh, called mm-hmm. ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny which is that the development of the fetus mm-hmm. it goes through the same stages as the evolution of the species mm-hmm. so that the very <laughs> early stages of the feces, species look like a the very early stages of the species when it was, uh, you know, it, it's growing in utero. <laughs> so the same thing, so, uh, so the same thing with people, they, they assume that the development of me from being fearful of authority to mm. me seeing adults with having no authority or little mm. authority somehow recapitulates what's going on in the wider society, which is that the degree of authoritarianism has decreased. Right. When in fact it stays the same. Then you're right. It's a matter of perspective. From the kid's perspective, it looks like the world is authoritarian. And from the when he grows up, it looks like eh, not so authoritarian after all. But assumes right. that it's because the world has changed, not because he has changed. Right. So this is so it's another example of how we sort of have these perennial ideas of social trends where people feel like they're at the apex of some massive change when in fact it's business as usual as it has always been. Yeah. And so that even when there's no change for the society, there is change for the individual because the individual is no longer a kid of six or seven. He's now a grown up of 36. Right. And then they write about it and all the other people who are turning however old and coming of age at the same time shared on Facebook and thus a fad of thought. Right. But, but you see this every generation, no matter how far you go back. And so I was thinking, well, that the, the, author, the myth of the authoritarian past is one that's particularly appealing to people who like authoritarianism and wish that mm. things today were more authoritarian. Um, and that leaves out us liberals. Mm. And so I was thinking, maybe it's the same appeal with the myth of the communitarian past, where mm-hmm. nobody was lonely and life was right. more gemeinschaftlich. <laughs> and... And I thought, well, maybe it's the same mechanism because, mm. after all, when you're a kid, feelings matter a lot. You can mm. be that you can be dependent on others. You have to be dependent on others, and others are reliably there to, uh, you know, to take care of your needs and your dependencies, mm-hmm. and that the world is warm and interpersonal and so on. And then when you grow up, mm-hmm. then personal relations, those kinds of personal relations are not as intense. And there's a lot more, you know, uh, call it gesellschaftlich uh, kinds of relations that you are engaged in. Mm -hmm. And so you think, 
gee, you know, when I was a kid, people used to look out for one another and take care right, of right. one another and all that. And what used to bowl to in leagues and all that. Right, right. yeah. So, yeah, <laughs> they used to bowl together. Uh, huh. And so and so, I call it the myth of the communitarian past. That's, and so you have these two parallel myths. One mm. is the epidemic of loneliness and its, uh, uh, its corollary is the decline of community. That's interesting. It reminds me of the narrative of consumerism is quite similar, I think. For example, I remember reading a passage in Adam Smith's uh, Moral Foundations where he talks about like uh, people who are lovers of toys and, uh, you know, want to spend their money on ear pickers and are no longer content with the cottage of their father. You know, that's the late 18th century. (laughs) Well, the same thing. I think somebody... Maybe Kieran or somebody dug up a quote from some ancient Roman complaining about, you know, kids don't listen to their parents anymore the way we used to. Oh, <laughs> oh that's hilarious. <laughs> uh, but but in sociology, we have these books. Hmm. And, you know, in the blog, I, I juxtapose three uh, book covers. And one is The Lonely Crowd. Great book. Very important hmm. book from 1950. Uh, mm. And then 1970, Philip Slater, The Pursuit of Loneliness, also a very good book. Mm. Uh, and then uh, 30 years later, Bowling Alone, 2000, and all hitting on this mm. same thing that that we have a decline of community and an increase right. in isolation and loneliness. Uh, so I think it's what liberals want more of, just the same as conservatives want more authoritarianism, liberals want more mm. communitarianism. And so we, mm. that goes hand in hand with being able to remember the old days as more communitarian. And everybody what, looked out for each yeah, other. And what, yeah. And what you're really doing is extrapolating from when I, w- my life when I was a kid to the old days society has changed. Society hasn't changed. It's just that you're now an adult and life for adults is not as communitarian as it is for children. You know what I like about that whole take? It made me reflect on sort of just the craft of doing sociology, you know? And you like to think that we're a social science that's developing cumulative knowledge and, you know, uh, advancing sort of pulling humanity's knowledge of how society works in some linear fashion where we don't go back. But when I was looking at your comparisons, boy, when you look at it through that type of perspective, it looks like we're basically, it's just a, an eternal quest to quash the easy tropes that seem to just come up every 20 to 30 years. It's just like an, it's an easy, easy argument, sort of a nice intuitive argument that, Someone's going to like, and then it becomes sort of stale until everybody forgets about it, and then someone else resurrects it. You know, like John Kenneth Galbraith said, financial crises happen every 20 years, which is about how long you need for like a new crop of young people who didn't experience the last one to start getting some money. Yes, except you know? financial crises can actually be measured. Uh, the And, you know, what Claude Fisher has tried to recreate is – data which would show whether there actually is a loneliness crisis in a way that there yeah. or epidemic in a way that there hasn't been in the past and he you know you can't find it so hmm. um so what we're reproducing is the same story but and and it may be a good story and it may be in some ways a true story but it's not a new story you know and so to write about it as though it is new is to forget, you know, that the story has been written before. So, Jay, you've been in the business for for a while, right? right? I don't want to, uh, <laughs> but like, so I, like, you've been in the business for a while, and uh, so what? Like, is this is this how it's always been? It's basically, you know, people looking, we're slinging stories, and it's not so much of a cumulative enterprise. Like, is this just something that you see after being in the business for you know a few decades? You're like, ah, oh, he's doing, uh, he's resurrecting so-and-so or he's doing this shtick or... Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, some ideas are just too appealing to let, you know, to let go of. Um, Die. <laughs> uh, and, and because maybe there's something to him. You know, I think I wrote to you, the first time I wrote to you was about 
I think you and Leslie and maybe Gabriel was in on too were bantering about mm. uh, medical sociology and ethnic dif- right. eth- ethnic differences in experiencing pain. And, uh, and yeah, yeah. I remember when I was, I guess, an undergraduate, we were exposed to this article by a guy named Borowski writing exactly about that, mm. that, you know, you go to the hospital and you can tell who are the Jews and who are the wasps and who are the events <laughs> by the way they talk yeah. about the pain. Uh, so, yeah, I, you know, it's probably, uh, you know, not as rigorous as uh, research as we would do today. But, you know, it's an appealing idea that then became sort of a little fell, I guess, out of favor, both in terms of ideology and maybe in terms of data. Mm. But you can see why it would keep coming back. It's funny, though. So it, it but it, it makes it it makes you feel as a sociologist like you're sort of on a hamster wheel. You know, like how there was, uh, you remember the Saturday morning cartoons where like they'd always defeat the bad guy, but you knew he'd be back next week and there was never any final solution to, you know, the eternal conflict. So these types of, you know, these types of recurrent tropes, I guess, is it just forever our duty to to probe them every time they come up every 20 years to redispel them? Or? Well, I think... I mean, it's interesting to look at the role of authoritarianism in, a fam- in American life and especially American families. And mm-hmm. and it's true. I mean, because, you know, go back to the Tocqueville probably earlier, certainly later, you know, through the 19th century and visitors to America comment about how, well, they put it differently, you know, some think of it as the children's independence or liberty uh, or rudeness and ill-matteredness, you know, depending on the visitor's point of view. But it's they're observing the same thing, that American children are much more independent than European children. Uh, in the same way, loneliness is important. And if uh, and whether or not it's increasing, it, it is an aspect of our culture. And, and the concern with community is an aspect of our culture, even if it's not you know, periodically reaching epidemic levels, it's still something that's, mm. you know, community is one of the basic sociological concepts that it's interesting to see how and where it is and what's going along with it. That was Jay Livingston of Montclair State University. Jay has one of the longest running blogs in the discipline, Montclair Socio Blog. You can find it at Montclair Soci, that's S-O-C-I, blogspot.com. Thank you for uh, sitting down, Jay. Okay, thanks a lot, John. You've been listening to the Annex Sociology Podcast. Special thank you to Corey Fields of Georgetown University and Jay Livingston of Montclair State. We're on the web, sociocast.org slash annex, on Twitter at sociannex, and on Facebook, the Annex Sociology Podcast. On behalf of Leslie Hickson and Corey Fields, I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening.